Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Soul Stealer by Ian Gordon Preface It was a grey day in the northern quarter. Black clouds gathered overhead as Jack Gill crossed Oldham Street in the direction of Kane's rare books. The shop, barely noticeable among the untidy facades of Tibb Street, was owned and operated by his old acquaintance, Norman Kane a man of indeterminate years, singularly devoted to the acquisition of the written word. Books, comics, magazines, notebooks, textbooks. You get the idea. The place had been a Manchester institution for over three decades, having first opened its doors in the latter half of the vibrant 1980s. The first drops of the petrichor-tinged late-summer drizzle fell upon the pavement, as Gill rapped on Kane's lowered shutters. It was Sunday, and consequently the store was closed, but Gill wasn't there on business. Within a minute or two, Gill heard the familiar fumbling on the other side of the shutters, and up they came, revealing the shop's proprietor, in the expected attire, namely creased pinstripe trousers and a time-worn off-white dress shirt, over which was thrown a black velvet smoking jacket. No words were exchanged, just a simple nod from both parties, followed by the obligatory handshake, which, from Gill's perspective, was always a perplexing gesture, given that Norman Kane had no hands of his own. Something had deprived his friend of those extremities many years earlier, though Gill, nor anyone else to his knowledge, had ever inquired as to the nature of the incident which had resulted in the loss. So therefore, to shake Kane's hand was to clutch and jiggle a cold, plastic fist. Gill made his way into the shop as the proprietor pulled the shutters down behind them. Gill's eyes fell upon the familiar interior, the ceiling-high shelves filled to bursting point with dusty hardbacks, the upright piano, its keyboard a home to horror first editions, table after table of comic book memorabilia in its original packaging, and the numerous wicker baskets overflowing with pulp magazines. The jazzy, dissonant tones of some long-forgotten music pervaded the air. Tunes from the golden age of radio, emitted from an antique console radio. But their destination was the basement, a room under lock and key, a space known only to Kane's nearest and dearest, a place to which Gill had finally been blessed with an invitation, the private collection. Kane approached an unassuming wooden bistro chair, weighed down by a number of heavy-looking volumes, and, with considerable effort, reached underneath and lifted the two front legs off the ground. The tipping motion triggered a mechanism to the rear of the chair, which, in turn, caused one of the bookshelves to open outwards, revealing a hidden door. Reaching into a jacket pocket, Kane fished out an iron key, and proceeded to unlock the secret portal, his imitation hand maintaining a uniform grip throughout. Beyond the threshold, at the bottom of a gloomy staircase, a dimly lit space beckoned. Kane led the way, Gill followed. The underground room was a modest space, some ten by six feet in diameter, but what it lacked in size, it made up for in content. Every inch of wall space was dedicated to reading material. Shelves towered from floor to ceiling, full to the brim with books, magazines, textbooks, et al., of rare and unknown origin, at least rare and unknown to Gill. The visitor gulped with his mouth agape, a regular Charlie in his very own chocolate factory, his eyes moving from one leather-bound opus to the next, feasting on the banquet of curiosity before him. But Gill, despite an overwhelming desire to browse at his own leisure, knew that it was his duty to count how to cane. Old Norman was the master of the place, and as was his wont, it was the prerogative of the keeper of the collection to select an appropriate point of discussion. It was always this way. Gill turned to face his friend, and watched as Kane's gaze targeted a small glass display cabinet on the north wall. To quell his excitement, Gill nibbled his bottom lip, for not only was this his first visit to the private collection, 
but also it was the first time the proprietor had ever threatened to reveal the contents of a locked cabinet. And the invitee waited with bated breath as Kane reached into an inside jacket pocket, fished out another iron key, and proceeded to unlock the cupboard. A few tense moments followed, as Kane moved a plastic hand back and forth in the act of selecting a tome from which to spin a yarn. Finally, the stiff appendage settled on a perfectly ordinary-looking sketchbook, and the proprietor carefully untucked it with a rigid finger. Gill immediately noted that the item, as had been the case with the cabinet, was protected. The homemade combination lock had been affixed to the hardback cover. Kane turned back to his friend, and, speaking for the first time that dismal August morning, said in his thick Lancashire accent, "'You read H.P. Lovecraft?' Gill frowned, returning, from time to time. Kane flipped the A4-sized sketchbook over in his plastic hands, the faint light from the exposed bulb above his head absorbed by its black, matte binding. "'A friend of mine acquired this.' he said, his eyes exploring the book's tattered spine, his porcelain-white fingers brushing the combination lock. And before you ask, I don't know the combination. What is it, Lovecraft? Kane looked up, meeting Gill's gaze. Oh, not quite, he said, shaking his head. Though you might say the story it contains is full of Lovecraftian flavour. This was classic Kane. After months, and in some cases years of teasing, he'd invite his closest acquaintances into his underground lair, only to ruminate over selections from the private collection in vague whispers, offering little more than evasive snippets of exposition. If asked, he'd describe this as building suspense, though his guests would probably nominate practicing pretentiousness as a more fitting description of the routine. In the end, though, he'd always get to the point and tell a tale spectacularly strange, or, as he would put it, wonderfully weird. I thought you said you didn't know the combination, Gill said. I don't, Kane replied. This friend of mine, the one who gave it to me, well, it was he who told me the tale. It, it was given to me for safekeeping. It, it's supposed to stay locked. Ah, Gill offered, sensing that Kane was about ready to spin his yarn. Now then, Kane began. It all started in the old city of York. Part One The Girl with the Sketchbook The location of the body was public knowledge. The victim, David Hayes, had fallen to his death from Bootham Bar, landing in the middle of the road some thirty feet below. Bootham Bar is the northernmost of the four gatehouses punctuating the old walls of the once-fortified city of York, serving as a popular tourist attraction. Unfortunately, this tourist felt it appropriate to scale the outer walls of the tower, losing both his grip and footing in the process. Hayes hadn't died upon impact. He'd crawled several feet in an absent daze before succumbing to his injuries. He suffered fractures to both legs, a broken back, and blunt force trauma to the head. When the emergency services arrived at the scene, the paramedics were faced with the difficult task of dispersing a sizable crowd. City dwellers and tourists alike had flocked to the dying man's side, and, up until the moment of his final breath, had maintained a sombre vigil. This was the scene as the paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen stumbled upon it, as he ducked out of the quiet and orderly comfort of the Grimoire bookshop several doors down from Bootham Bar. It was serendipity, really, for Van Melsen wasn't a city man, had only popped into town on an errand. The stop at the bookshop was unplanned. But, as a proponent of the written word, he could never resist the company of a good antiquarian, especially one whose knowledge and fascination rivalled his own. He'd heard the commotion outside, had discussed it with the shop's proprietor, but so engaged were they on the subject of forced which in itself was to some degree coincidental, the pair had refused to yield to the hustle and bustle. Van Melsen approached the fallen tourist, who, presently, was being lifted onto a stretcher. Several forlorn bystanders sobbed into handkerchiefs, whilst others, too stunned to cry, stood huddled together in silent circles, their empty gazes unfocused. A young woman, some 
twenty years of age, sat in the middle of the road with her head in her hands. Van Melson addressed her. What happened here? The woman looked up, revealing a face marred by tear-smeared mascara. He fell from the tower, she said, and gestured towards the looming presence of Boothambar. Fell? What was he doing up there in the first— But he was wasting his breath. She'd heard enough. Her head returned to her hands. Van Melson surveyed the scene as the body of David Hayes was carried away. He looked to the vacant faces surrounding him, saw the pool of blood in the middle of the road. He listened to the muted voices in the distance, the interminable traffic noise. Then he sensed a presence nearby. Turning, he saw another young woman, ordinary enough, he thought, dark-haired and diminutive, wearing jeans and a plain black sweater, standing just south of the bookshop from which he'd emerged some minutes earlier. The girl was clutching a sketchbook. She held it out before her, scribbling vigorously. Van Melson, in a state of heightened awareness, wondered what it was exactly she was working on. The splendor of High Petergate, or something else? Something macabre? He was about to move in her direction, when the girl, quite abruptly, snapped the sketchbook closed, turned, and fled. He wanted to follow her, felt an irresistible urge to know what was on those leaves of paper, but such action was out of the question. He suspected that her sudden appearance, following such a gruesome death, was anything but coincidental. He had a knack for such things—a sixth sense, if you will. Decades of research into anomalous phenomena had honed his supernatural instincts. He was a professional in his field, and well respected among his peers. If Van Melson had a hunch— you could take it to the bank. And a hunch he had that terrible day, an inkling that the girl with the sketchbook was up to something. Something nefarious, something supernatural. Still, he wouldn't go after her. If his instincts had any veracity, then the two would cross paths again. He felt it in his bones. He would leave it to fate. But then an idea came to mind. Part Two, The Second Encounter It was a simple idea, really. He'd visit the city more often, once, twice, or even three times a week, in the macabre hope that another death, be it accidental or otherwise, would again bring him face to face with the mysterious girl with the sketchbook. He justified this drastic measure by considering the visit's opportunities to conduct research, which— in line with what passed for research in the mind of Peter Van Melsen, revolved around time spent drifting from bookshop to library, tea-room to coffee-shop, in quest of literature and caffeine, the two most valuable commodities in his world. Aside from his love of nicotine, of course. Was that just another addiction? If you asked him, the man with the sharp features would probably say that love and addiction were two sides of the same coin— that the lines between what we consider to be opposites are rarely visible. We draw the lines, he would mutter, adding, there are no opposites in nature, whilst puffing on a cigarette, filling his lungs with the object of his compulsion. Driven by his quest for the enigmatic girl, the investigator saw to it that he spent more time in the city of York. His journey by bus from the village of Rosedale, deep in the Hawardian Hills, was a trifling matter to begin with. He enjoyed the peace and quiet of the ride, his thoughts keenly focused by the beauty of the landscapes and townships through which he passed. But, as the frequency of his visits to the city increased, he quickly grew tired of the repetitive commute, and, before long, was resigned to spending the occasional night in a hotel, or the entire weekend in a guesthouse. And the nights were long, the weekends longer. To catch a glimpse of Van Melsen during that period would have been to behold a gaunt loner out of time, shrouded by a cloud of smoke, his lanky figure against the façade of a busy tea-room by the banks of the Ouse, or sheltering beneath the overhanging buildings of the Shambles. Bulky volumes would have been his only burden, and the look in his eye would have been one of pure determination—a man in search of death. It was all-consuming for the investigator who felt quite strongly 
that the mysterious girl had to be found. There was something in that brief encounter on High Petergate that drove him relentlessly back to the old city of York. Fortunately, Van Melsen was something of a celebrity in certain circles, owing to his seminal work in the fields of esoterica and the occult, having proven the existence of numerous phenomena such as the wildly fantastic Wandermoth and the fabled Cantor rhythms. He was a regular columnist for the British magazine Fortean Weekly, recounting the many cases he'd investigated on behalf of despairing constabularies up and down the British Isles. His reputation was a profitable one, allowing him the very freedom required to spend prolonged periods of time in what he referred to as the big city. Above all else, Van Melsen was a patient man, and his fortitude finally paid off when, almost two months after the death on High Petergate, he happened to witness a particularly violent brawl outside a pub on one of York's oldest thoroughfares, Fosgate. The fight, in the early hours of the morning, involved a pair of intoxicated youngsters, who, following crossed woods by the roaring fire within, it was late January, had allowed their mutual anger to spill out onto the chilly streets, resulting in a pint mug to the head of the smaller of the two. The investigator had been strolling along Fosgate only moments after the fatal blow was issued, mere seconds, much to his chagrin, too late. The perpetrator had fled the scene, leaving his victim to quietly bleed out by the curb. Van Melsen fought to hold back the tidal wave of guilt that threatened to wash over him. He'd wanted this, pursued this, all in the hope that his elusive target would appear as a result. And there was this young man, boy, really, slumped on the cobbles, fading before his very eyes, robbed of his life by nothing more than an alcohol-fueled misunderstanding. But the investigator's guilt was quickly usurped by an overwhelming sense of pity. It wasn't his fault this young man had been attacked, it was chance raising its ugly head once again. Inevitability. And then pity was brushed aside in favour of another sense— manifesting as a sort of tingling impression at the base of his neck. Van Melsen slowly rotated, and there, under the light of the dim, yellow street lamps, he saw the girl with the sketchbook. Several punters had emerged from the pub, and, presently, were tending to the boy by the curb. The general commotion was raucous and distracting, but the investigator continued to eyeball the girl. She held the book out in front of her, but she wasn't sketching. She was poised, Van Melsen observed, expectant, as if in anticipation of something specific. There was no indication whatsoever that she felt his watchful gaze upon her. Her attention was focused exclusively on the still body of the young man, her eyes dark hollows of intent. Further commotion indicated that the boy had stopped breathing, and another punter, evidently in possession of basic CPR, was doing everything in her power to resuscitate him. But it wasn't the fact that the boy remained unresponsive that told Van Melsen that he had reached the end of life. It was the fact that the girl was now animated, scribbling, almost fiercely. The young man had passed on, and the girl with the sketchbook knew it. But as Van Melsen geared himself up to make his move, the girl, once again, snapped the sketchbook closed, turned, and fled into the darkness. Despite the long months waiting for this second encounter, the investigator opted once again to leave her be. He couldn't go after her. It wasn't his style. But he'd learned something this time, something that was only an inkling two months ago. The enigmatic girl was attuned to the subtle frequencies governing life and death, frequencies he too was often wont to intercept. In short, she knew where and when death was about to occur— but what Van Melsen had yet to learn was why the girl felt such a strong compulsion to commit the deaths to paper. Part 3. First Contact It was a car accident that brought about Van Melsen's third encounter with the girl. Following the incident on Fosgate, Van Melsen had plunged his weary head into a number of books on the subjects of clairvoyance, ESP, and even remote viewing, 
but none of the facts in the case involving the mysterious youngster seemed to correspond with his researches. With regards to the girl's inexplicable attraction to the moribund, the investigator, in light of past experiences, had initially felt that a degree of psychic ability was the source of her strange compulsion, but he'd later dismissed the idea, deeming it too convenient an explanation, that something else was directing her towards some shadowy end. As Van Melsen mused on the subject, minding his own business in a coffee shop on Bishopthorpe Road, an absent driver jumped a red light, surprising and subsequently mowing down an elderly lady in the act of crossing the road. Startled, the investigator tossed his piping hot mug of coffee into the air and rushed to the scene of the accident. The pensioner, a frail individual in a flowing floral dress, had been hurled into the middle of the road, her broken limbs bent at impossible angles, straddling the centre line. She wasn't breathing, had died on impact. A number of concerned citizens rushed to her aid, but like the investigator, quickly realised that there was nothing they could do for her. The driver of the car, a tall, sprightly individual, some forty years of age, emerged from the vehicle with his hands about his head, muttering incoherently, his eyes glued to the result of his negligence. But Van Melsen's attention was soon diverted, when, out of the corner of his eye, he saw the now familiar silhouette of the enigmatic girl. He turned, and beheld her in her entirety, the dark hair, the jeans, the black sweater, and, of course, the sketchbook. But this time he caught her eye, and she returned his gaze, the pair fleetingly caught in mutual acknowledgment. And it was in that moment that Van Melsen saw the youngster emerge from the depths of the darkness that had held her. Her eyes widened, revealing emerald pools. A sense of awareness washed over her pale face. She shook her head, as if dismissing an unwelcome thought, looked down at the sketchbook in her hands. She cursed under her breath, clutching the book like a foreign object, an unfamiliar object that had no business whatsoever being in her possession. Peter Van Melsen saw all of this, and determined to reach her at any cost. With a gracefulness uncommon for him, the investigator tentatively approached the source of his obsession. The girl must have sensed his honest intentions, because she didn't retreat, showed no intention of taking flight. She simply stood there on the corner of Bishopthorpe Road and Vine Street, watching the approach of the man out of time, the tall, gaunt stranger whose face was a white mask of quiet reserve. And when he was within a handshake of her, it was she who broke the silence. I'm too late, she said, her voice barely a whisper. Too late for what? Van Melsen asked. For her, she continued, gesturing towards the prostrate form in the middle of the road. Van Melsen frowned. Care to elaborate? The girl hesitated. I'm not sure how, she said, but her eyes widened further, the abyss that had held her closing up beneath her. It isn't me that wants them, you know. It isn't me. Tears threatened to dampen her cheeks. I know, Van Melsen offered, and smiled. So rare was his face adorned with a smile, that the effort involved in manoeuvring the muscles required to achieve the desired effect sent waves of dull pain shooting upwards in the direction of his temples. But the smile was met with a response he had intended it to evoke. The girl with the sketchbook smiled back, and the tears evaporated. "'Can I buy you a cup of tea?' he asked. "'That would be lovely.' she said, and following her assent, the pair strolled side by side in the direction of the city centre, choosing to ignore the dreadful accident that had finally brought about their introduction. There would be time to reflect later. What a sight the pair made! Peter Van Melsen, the towering, slender, sharply dressed echo of a bygone era, and the enigmatic girl, an untidy millennial, half his age and half his height a look of wonder stamped upon her face, walking together in total silence. But there was something significant in their coming together, a fate foreseen by the famed investigator. He'd known that to come face to face with a girl was to open a can of particularly volatile worms, because her motivations were driven by something beyond her, something in need of a human agent in order to acquire its 
terrible necessities. Van Melsen escorted the girl to Della Vega's tea-room on Castlegate, and, once within its chintzy interior, acquired a quiet and spacious booth. Seated there on the broad benches, under the glow of an orange lamp, the investigator set out to accomplish two things—drink tea and talk death. The owner of the tea-room, Paul, had become familiar with Van Melsen and his comings and goings, but, up until that afternoon, had only ever served him in the company of heavy-looking books. So, naturally, he was rather surprised to see the man sitting opposite a young and rather attractive, if a little dishevelled, girl. And there was a tangible presence surrounding them, Paul thought, an atmosphere so thick that he felt he could slice it with a bread-knife. But the strange tension was promptly alleviated, as the investigator politely ordered a pot of tea for two. As Mr. De La Vega disappeared into the depths of the tea-room, Van Melsen turned to his present company. Finally, he asked her the first of many questions he'd been waiting to ask for over two months. "'What's your name?' "'Ellen,' the girl proffered. "'Ellen Moore.' "'It's a pleasure to meet you at last, Ellen.' The investigator extended a long, steady arm. Ellen took the cold hand at the end of it, and shook it gently. "'I'm Peter. Peter Van Melsen.' Most people call me Van Melsen, but you can call me whatever you like. It's nice to meet you too, Mr. Van Melsen. The investigator shook his head briskly. <laughs> Anything but Mr. Please, <laughs> he blurted, followed by a series of grunts, which Alan surmised was some form of rusty laughter. She chuckled. <laughs> can I ask what it is you do? The youngster asked. I'm an investigator, my dear. Fields of expertise, the occult. Anomalous phenomena, and such like. Oh. Ellen returned, at a loss for words. Rare these days, I know. But I assure you, my nuts and bolts are tightly wound. <laughs> the girl chuckled again, eyeballing the investigator with an air of curiosity. He was handsome, she thought, but much in the way she found her grandfather to be in old faded photographs. Van Melsen wasn't a man of the twenty-first century, she concluded. He was a character from a Hammer horror movie an immaculately presented vampire-hunter or werewolf-slayer. His overcoat was just a touch too long, she felt, and the lapels of the velvet blazer beneath were just a touch too sharp for this man to be anything but the product of an overactive imagination. Yet there he was, a living, breathing specimen of yesteryear. And, furthermore, much like those lone heroes of the low-budget horror movies of the past would have done, given half the chance, Peter Van Melsen had come to her aid. "'How did you know I was in trouble?' she asked. Van Melsen tipped his head towards her, and said, in an even tone, "'I have a keen sense of the supernatural.' At this interval, the tea-room's proprietor returned to the table, carrying a tray host to a large teapot and a matching china tea-set. "'Here we are,' he said, placing the tray on the table between them, his gaze once again drawn to the young girl— who was now smiling. "'Thank you, Paul,' Van Melsen offered. Ellen simply smiled. "'Enjoy,' Della Vega said, and promptly departed. "'The tea is wonderful here,' the investigator commented, proceeding to fill the cups on the tray with tea from a blushing bird's teapot. He added a drop of milk and a single sugar-cube to both cups. After what they had witnessed on Bishopthorpe Road, only sweet tea would do. "'And I've you to thank for discovering this place.' he continued, motioning towards the colourful surroundings. The girl raised her eyebrows as she tasted the tea. "'How so?' she asked, post-slurp. "'Today wasn't the first time our paths have crossed,' Van Melsen said. "'In fact, I first noticed you over two months ago. You were present at the death of one David Hayes, the man who fell from Bootham Bar. Do you remember?' Ellen placed the cap on the saucer before her, and closed her eyes. Yes, she said. I remember them all. How many of them have there been? Van Melsen continued. Too many, she said, and as the words left her mouth, her eyes were drawn to the closed sketchbook on the table beside her. Did you draw them all? Yes. Is that the only book? Yes. The investigator took a sip of tea and leaned back on the bench. His brow formed a deep V-shape as he frowned carefully considering his next words. "'Can I take a look?' he ventured. Ellen 
clearly startled by the request, hesitated, before returning, I don't think you should. Have you been warned against sharing its contents with others? Yes, Ellen answered, and the last vestiges of colour drained from her cheeks. Van Melsen leaned forward again. I know what's happening here, Ellen. This isn't the first time a gifted artist has been manipulated like this. It may surprise you to learn that artists of all kinds—painters, sculptors, architects—have served as unwitting agents of the hidden ones throughout the centuries. Really? she stammered. You aren't the first, and you won't be the last. The investigator gestured towards Ellen's cup. Drink your tea, my dear. She took another sip of the brew, before nervously asking, But how did you— how did you know about the hidden one? Back on High Petergate, Van Milsen started, when Mr. Hayes fell to his death, I felt a presence. It wasn't the presence of the hidden one, mind you, more the presence of its victim, the presence of one acting under the influence of something inhuman, the one in need of help. And when I turned to locate the source of this feeling, I saw you, Ellen, scribbling briskly, mindlessly devoted to some hellish task. Ellen nodded. When I'm out there, sketching, she said, it's like a dream, only I'm seeing things from the back of my mind, like a witness to a crime or something. It's only afterwards that I can really reflect on it, but even then it's fuzzy, and I only ever recall the person as they lay dying, not so much the act of drawing them. The girl paused, before adding, And I don't remember seeing you. Nor did you see me the second time, following the death of Brian Eshbor, the boy hit over the head outside the highwayman inn. The investigator paused to sip his tea. But this afternoon, he continued, down by Bishopthorpe Road, you missed the moment the lady passed on, and so I was able to obtain and hold your attention, just long enough to temporarily dispel the presence of the hidden one. Ellen, quite abruptly, blurted, Can you help me? Van Melsen nodded. Yes, yes, he said, and attempted to smile again, as some of the colour returned to the young lady's cheeks. But you're going to have to take me to it, Ellen, he added, and frowned, watching the colour leave her cheeks again as quickly as it had returned. But— She started, then immediately trailed off, knowing her only chance of being free of her burden was to accept the help of her new, eccentric acquaintance. The investigator sipped his tea and nodded encouragingly. Now then, he began, pausing for dramatic effect, can you take me to it? Part 4. The Hidden Ones Reluctantly, Ellen Moore agreed to lead her fortuitous friend to the lair of the thing he'd referred to as a hidden one, but not before quizzing Van Melsen on his knowledge of the subject of his seemingly miraculous understanding of her plight. The hidden ones, according to the learned investigator, were ancient occupants of the earth, beings who had roamed its surface eons ago, during a dark epoch he referred to as the Deep Twilight. This tenebrous age was a period in Earth's history following the alleged eruption of a supervolcano, in which vast clouds of ash thrown into the atmosphere blotted out almost all light and heat from the sun resulting in a barren and inhospitable world. It was during this shadowy time that the antecedents of the Hidden Ones came to earth, having identified its cold, nitrogen-rich atmosphere as a practical substitute for some other world long since abandoned in the unimaginably distant reaches of the galaxy. These otherworldly beings, far beyond humankind's ability to describe in any great detail, survived for millennia on the Earth's surface, prospering in the bleakness. But Mother Earth had other plans for her planet. The inexorable sun sought to penetrate the expansive clouds that had shrouded the planet for centuries, and, slowly but surely, as it eventually did so, Earth's new inhabitants found its capricious conditions to be increasingly hostile. The Hidden Ones were sensitive to both heat and light. And so, the Hidden Ones concocted a plan— Rather than risk the frigid voids of space in another intergalactic relocation effort, they identified a refuge closer to home, the subterranean world beneath their feet, a honeycomb labyrinth of shadowlands and constant temperature. It wasn't perfect, but it was a reasonable alternative. 
But deep in the earth, the beings from another world encountered new troubles, earthquakes and subsidence, reducing cities and kingdoms to rubble, declining intelligence confined to narrow passages with little space to propagate, and the presence of the other things that lived in the depths beneath them, the great old ones, or elder things, they were said to be named. Those denizens of the underworld were not to be trifled with, and, by all accounts, not to be spoken of either. To do so was to imbue them with power, to remind the world of their existence. To tempt them forth was dangerous, much too dangerous for humankind to contemplate. These beings were suspended in the dark recesses of the inner earth, dreaming, so it was said. The hidden ones, trapped in an abyss of their own making, were within striking distance of the old ones, they who slumbered in the earth's deepest places, and, in their quiet desperation, turned to their alluring presence in a bid for salvation. These giant, silent beings were looked upon as gods, prayed to, worshipped, adored. And in the hidden ones' darkest dreams, their prayers were answered. But they were ill-prepared for the dreadful malignity that poured forth from the unconscious minds of the old ones, and a stream of terrible, polluted intent infected the hidden ones, changed them, apprised them with forbidden secrets of elder lore, taught them diabolical, primal practices, pervade the mysteries of the flesh, and the secrets of the soul. And, akin to their teachers, those beastly creatures frozen in time, the hidden ones too lapsed into profound reveries, petrified as it were, becoming little more than the stony protuberances by which they were surrounded, entombed alongside their masters, dreaming, inhumanly patient. Ages passed. Eventually, Mother Earth saw fit to introduce a new intelligence to her planet the loping bipedal creature known as the Wise Man, or Homo Sapiens. Mankind evolved rapidly, from hunter-gatherer to rocket-launcher, whilst deep beneath the surface of the earth, frozen in that secret subterranean world, the Hidden Ones remained, waiting. Perhaps it was the pitter-patter of mankind's plentiful feet that finally roused them, Van Melsen ventured, in reference to what individuals belonging to certain learned circles at once referred to as the awakening of the Hidden Ones. These individuals, according to Van Melsen, had suggested that the Hidden Ones, having learned to dream in the manner of the Old Ones, had embedded themselves in the unconscious minds of psychically hypersensitive human beings, in order to fulfil some malign purpose. This suggestion was put forth following the discovery of a book in 1977, a mysterious tome by the name of Nun found among the effects of one Daniel Fisk, a paranormal investigator based in Cleveland, Ohio, who had travelled extensively throughout Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan throughout the 1950s. According to a series of diary entries on the subject of the find, the book was found in a discount bookstore in an unnamed bazaar in the heart of Georgia's capital, Tbilisi, in the possession of a shopkeeper who was apparently at a loss to explain its presence amid his wares. Though Van Melsen had never beheld a copy of Nun, Fisk's copy was taken to Chicago following his death in 77, he was privy, thanks to friends in certain circles, to its rather extensive chapters on the subject of the Hidden Ones, in which a number of hypersensitive dreamers throughout Georgia and its neighbouring countries had come together to form a sort of primitive organisation, dedicated to the worship of the Hidden Ones, or, as the organisation referred to them, the Dwellers of the Deep. The organization, often called the One Cult, or Deep Cult, claimed to have been informed through dreams that the Hidden Ones had awakened, and were preparing to return to the surface. But they were weak, dreamers of the One Cult said, and that in order to survive in our temperate, brightly lit atmosphere, certain things would be required, things it was said only human beings could provide, things shown to them by the Old Ones things the very likes of which Van Melsen's new acquaintance, the girl with the sketchbook, could be persuaded to help them acquire, given the proper motivation. As Peter Van Melsen concluded his lengthy and somewhat arduous lecture, Ellen Moore was beginning to appreciate the full extent of what it was the Hidden One hoped to gain from her macabre sketches. When it had first approached her in her dreams, 
She hadn't seen an ancient being from another world. She'd seen a man, an ordinary-looking fellow, an individual who appealed to her quiet demeanour and candid sensibilities. This man, who had never proffered a name, simply asked for help, and had told her where to find him in the waking world, and what to bring with her, should she choose to seek him out. Suitably intrigued, she'd made her way to that secret spot, heard him calling to her from the gloom, and offered that which he had requested—a simple sketchbook. She waited there on the brink of the underworld, waited at the edge of that deep place for the sketchbook to be returned to her. And return it did, that plain black volume, imbued with special properties in order for her to sketch upon its magical pages the forms of the dying, to capture the last vestiges of life as the living became the dead. But now she understood why she'd been asked to capture those images, why she'd been asked to return the book to its maker, after new deaths had been committed to its pages. The hidden one was what Van Melsen referred to as a soul-stealer. To sketch a person in the throes of death to the pages of that accursed book was to pledge their soul to its spoiled leaves, and, once returned to the subterranean dweller, the soul would serve as nourishment, fodder for the beast, fuel to aid its imminent return to the surface of a world abandoned eons ago. "'What have I done?' Ellen asked, her eyes fraught with fear. "'You haven't done anything, my dear.' Van Melsen returned in an effort to reassure her. This thing is beyond our experience. It is only through speculation and allegory that we can even attempt to understand its motivations. Forst was at the very least predictable. <laughs> the investigator laughed heartily, but his reference to the man who sold his soul to the devil was lost on the girl, who, however unfairly, felt herself responsible for the eternal damnation of dozens of innocent human beings. "'I'm sorry,' Van Melsen offered, reaching for the now lukewarm teapot. That was in poor taste. "'I just want this to be over, Peter.' "'And over it will be. We just need to—' "'But if these things are preparing to return to the surface—' the girl interrupted. "'Can you really hope to stop them?' "'It's not my job to stop them, Ellen,' Van Melsen said bluntly. "'It's my job to take you out of the equation.' The girl simply eyeballed the investigator— before clutching the teacup and taking a long sip. One step at a time, eh? he added. But Ellen remained silent. She knew what needed to be done, knew where they needed to go. But she was dreading it. She always dreaded it, had dreaded it before Van Melsen had explained its true nature. But now fear held her in a tremendous suspense. She drained the remnants of the teacup and climbed to her feet. The time had come to make the long journey— into the hills. Part 5. The Deep Place The paranormal investigator and the girl with the sketchbook left the city of York, and took a bus deep into the Howardian Hills. Far beyond the village he called home, Rosedale, the pair alighted by the old walls of Castle Howard to the east. But it wasn't onto the expansive grounds of the historic estate that Ellen Moore guided them. A winding bridleway took them in the opposite direction, away from the civilized parklands of the stately home, steering them towards a forested area overlooking a picturesque valley, some three miles west. Through wild fields and agricultural byways the couple tramped, negotiating brooks and swampy embankments, the grey sky of a late winter afternoon looming above them like a spectral veil. Van Melsen noted the evidence of the girl's previous visits to the mysterious site, large swathes of trodden grass and upturned topsoil providing a clear route towards the mass of trees beyond. Rain had started to fall as the pair reached the edge of the forest, but the extensive canopies of towering oak and birch offered shelter from the oncoming downpour. Into the heart of the dense woodland the pair continued, accompanied by a dreadful silence. The hum of the great outdoors was entirely absent. There were no birds among the foliage, no squirrels going about their daily business, only the pattering of rainfall above and the crunching of undergrowth below. Before long, Ellen, her face pale and glowering, 
indicated that the deep place was near, that she felt a great deal of trepidation in approaching it in the company of the investigator. But Van Melsom was in possession of robust supernatural instincts, and hadn't required a heads-up from the girl to know that the hidden one was close by, for he had felt its awful presence the moment he'd stepped into the woods, had been aware of the odour accompanying it, the smell of something unwholesome and putrid. They soldiered on, despite the girl's misgivings, and within a matter of minutes had crested a small acclivity overlooking what appeared to be an open pit some seven or eight feet in diameter. As Van Melsen beheld the pit, he saw nothing unusual in its shape and form, nor did he question its existence as anything other than a natural aperture, possibly an entrance to a system of caves or similar. But the presence he'd sensed was assuredly emanating from that hole, as was the putrid stench, which had intensified dramatically since ascending the slope. His sharp instincts warned him against getting too close to its source. Whether or not the occupant of the pit was aware of the investigator's presence seemed of little relevance, as, almost immediately upon their arrival, a strange voice rose from the darkness of the aperture, speaking directly to the girl with the sketchbook. Disembodied was too weak a word to describe the nature of the voice that assailed Van Melsen's ears but it was the only word that seemed to apply to the thin, hollow quality of that otherworldly din. Give, it commanded, the word a terrible confirmation of Ellen Moore's dreadful quandary. But when the youngster hesitated, looking back at the investigator, the voice came again, issuing precisely the same command. Give. Ellen approached the edge of the hole, and, in a manner well-practiced, took the requested item in both hands, and held it out over the aperture. A succession of sounds answered the gesture, sounds impossible to describe, but unquestionably belonging to something inhuman, and Ellen let go of the book. But instead of disappearing into the blackness, the expected result of gravity acting upon an item left to its own volition in mid-air, the sketchbook simply floated there, before gradually, and with a feather-like grace, it descended into the void below. Further alien sounds followed, sounds the investigator might have compared to the noises one might expect to hear at the dinner table, following an extended period of hunger. These sounds, the retching and the spluttering, the grunting and the fizzing, were short-lived, making way for an extended period of deathly silence. The investigator and the youngster simply held their positions, patiently waiting for the second phase of their encounter with the thing in the pit. And then, out of the Stygian gloom floated an object, the object, the sketchbook. It hovered there above the pit, awaiting collection. Like an automaton, Ellen collected the book, shivering as its icy-cold binding came into contact with her warm flesh. She returned to Van Melsen's side, and, motivated by some inexplicable drive, opened the book to the page upon which she was supposed to have committed the dying form of the elderly lady on Bishopthorpe Road. Looking up at the investigator, she eyeballed him intently, willing him to comprehend the strange smattering of letters that had been scribbled there. Three characters had been sketched upon the page, in a dark, crimson-coloured liquid that gave off that same fetid odour Van Melsen was struggling to identify. The investigator saw an inverted S, a character that looked like the letter B turned on its side, and a third character that closely resembled the Roman numeral 3. He turned confused eyes upon the youngster, as if to say, I don't understand. And in response to his silent statement, Ellen proffered, It says, Fail again, and the next soul will be yours. Part 6. The Plan Peter Van Melsen, the renowned paranormal investigator, often credited as such on the pages of Fortean Weekly, took the decision to invite Helen Moore, the girl with a sketchbook, to his humble abode in the quiet village of Rosedale, some ten miles northwest of the forest in the ravine. She was in danger. He hadn't needed to witness the strange penmanship of the ancient beast to know that. 
and so he felt it imperative to remove her from the source of that danger, in order to concoct a reasonable plan of action. Together, they made their way back across the boggy landscape, much relieved to have missed the worst of the weather, and boarded a bus on the outskirts of the village of Bulmer, in the direction of Rosedale. What a sight to see! The sodden adventurers, the gaunt investigator and the youngster, side by side aboard the 519, their faces masks of contemplation. Alighting at Rosedale, Van Melson escorted Ellen to the cottage on Back Lane, and led her directly to the quiet comfort of his personal library. There, in the company of his leather-bound colleagues, a collection of over a thousand books, the girl with the sketchbook listened to the soothing wail of a kettle on the stove, as her host prepared tea in the adjoining kitchen. She gazed at the myriad volumes surrounding her, hundreds of anonymous-looking tomes, with only the occasional suggestion of something remotely familiar, dictionaries, the Encyclopaedia Britannica, the complete works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, M. R. James's Ghost Stories of an Antiquary. She wondered what obscure wisdom she might acquire if she were to spend a week studying under Van Melsen, what there was to learn about the nature of the thing that had held her in its grip for many long months. Perhaps it was better not to know, to accept the help of the investigator and ask nothing else of him, to simply thank him and walk away when the trouble was over, if it was to be over. But there was something about her eccentric saviour, something in his manner that was endearing to her. She pondered his origins, for he certainly wasn't a local man. She contemplated his backstory, what it was that drove him, that led him to become a purveyor of all things weird and wonderful, that fueled his compulsion to lift the veil of mediocrity and rummage through the dark secrets beneath. As she mused, the inscrutable figure returned to the library, carrying a wooden tray host to an ornate china teapot, two cups, and a selection of biscuits. Good, she thought. He likes biscuits. Some small portion of him belongs to this universe. Van Melsen sat across from Ellen in an uncomfortable-looking wooden armchair, poured her a cup of tea, and followed her gaze as she silently questioned him with regards to the numerous books dotted about the shelves surrounding them. "'It's by no means a comprehensive collection,' he said modestly. "'But, considering my field of expertise, I like to think I've got all my bases covered. <laughs> in any case, there's no such thing as a comprehensive collection.' And Van Melsen continued in such a fashion, outlining his parameters for good and or relevant reading material. "'There are books out there, for example,' he continued, "'that shouldn't belong to any collection—Baker's Thief, Jericho's Sorcerella, Alhazred's Necronomicon, not to mention that mysterious book of Georgian origin—none.' The investigator paused, then turned his gaze upon Ellen's sketchbook, which was now lying next to the teapot on the small table between them. And I fear that that is another example, Ellen. Reluctantly, she glanced at the book. When I asked to see it earlier, the investigator continued, I had no intention of looking inside. But when I saw the hidden one's message within, I was on the verge of seeing too much. Van Melsen paused, his eyes intently focused upon the sketchbook. You see— the book is meant for its eyes only. Your gaze is only permitted in the cold light of day due to the fact that it is by your hand that the souls of its victims are committed to its pages. If others were to see the forms printed there, well, chances are most of us would be driven to madness. It is not wholesome for the living to lay eyes upon the souls of the dead. Van Melsen sipped his tea, then lit a cigarette. Can I have one of those? Ellen asked, and her host immediately obliged, reaching across to light it. Ellen puffed on the cigarette, then exhaled a thick cloud of smoke, adding, So what are we going to do about it? The investigator leaned back in his chair, scratched his forehead, and said, We've another soul to commit to the sketchbook. Ellen gawped at her new friend, too stunned to puff on the cigarette, sip the tea, or mouth a response. Van Melsen had a plan— a dangerous one, but a plan nevertheless. Tomorrow, at the crack of dawn, he began, I'll arrange for a car to take us back out there. I know a few folks around these parts who'll drive us, no questions asked. We'll be heading into the fray with nothing but the clothes on our backs, an electric lantern, 
and the sketchbook, and, of course, the pencils you carry in that satchel of yours. He pointed to the location of the small purse that Ellen had evidently gone to great lengths to keep concealed beneath the thick black sweater she wore. How did you know I had a purse hidden away? she quizzed. You have to keep your pencils somewhere, don't you, my dear? Ellen giggled, adding, <laughs> And the rest. Van Melsen chuckled, puffed on the cigarette. It was as he exhaled that Ellen noticed the predominant colour of the vast majority of the books in the library, nicotine yellow. What's the lantern for? she asked, returning to the subject at hand. You'll see, the investigator said cryptically, and winked. And as he did so, in that old-fashioned manner she'd only ever seen in black and white on Sunday afternoons in front of the television at her grandparents' place, she realised his intentions. It was clear he didn't take her for a fool. Van Melsen was able to communicate with her on a level she'd never experienced before. Did that make her an old soul? The kind of person who not only watched those black-and-white movies with her grandparents, but actually enjoyed them? Felt an unspoken kinship with those bygone characters? Absolutely, she thought. And Peter Van Melsen, the renowned paranormal investigator, the character from a Hammer horror movie, understood her, got her, completely. Unlikely as the duo were, fate had brought them together. The pair of them, like a latter-day Holmes and Watson, were out to bag themselves a monster. Part 7 Give, and it shall be given unto you. Ellen, who had slept soundly on a daybed in Van Melsen's living room, was roused by the man a little after 6.30am. Moments later, the odour of fresh coffee pervaded her nostrils, as the investigator wafted a mug of the stuff under her snout. She drank from the proffered cup eagerly, enjoying the instant gratification afforded by what was evidently a sizable dose of caffeine. Van Melsen sipped coffee too, with a sense of calm about him the young lady coveted as she sat up on the edge of the bed, insensible. By the time the grandfather clock in the hall struck seven, the pair, suitably perked up by the caffeine, had vacated the cottage and were waiting for the car on back lane, the investigator holding a battery-operated storm lantern and Ellen clutching the sketchbook. It was a cold morning, and as such, Van Melsen had furnished the girl with a rather becoming overcoat. It was much too large for her, of course, but it added a layer of psychological protection, in addition to shielding her from the chill. The car arrived just after 7.05, an aging blue Ford Cortina that looked as though it had absolutely no business whatsoever tackling the winding roads of the Howardian Hills. The term rust bucket wouldn't have been too harsh in describing the vehicle's shabby appearance. The driver of the cerulean relic, a heavy-set individual with a head of curly white hair, nodded as he pulled to the curb, a gesture the investigator recognized as an invitation. In response to this, Van Melsen and Ellen climbed into the back of the car and buckled their seatbelts, as the driver took off into the mist-cloaked stillness of the countryside. Within fifteen minutes, a little after seven-twenty, the driver had delivered the intrepid duo to the requested location, a section of road from which the pair could once more tread in the direction of the pit. The familiar valley through which they trod, still sodden from the previous day's downpour, was in possession of a potent atmosphere that morning. Basking in the twilight of a late winter morning, clouds of mist dominated the expanse, drifting from field to plain revealing the occasional tree or cautious deer, making navigation difficult. But the pair pressed on, undeterred. The two of them had little to discuss. Their objective was clear. It simply remained for them to reach their destination, in order to execute Van Melsen's plan. Into the heart of the forsaken forest they strolled, and, before long, found themselves overlooking the aperture. Van Melsen once more taken aback by the raw fetter emanating from that damnable place. Daylight fought to penetrate the scene, mostly conquered though it was by the dense canopy wreathed in lingering fog. Still, the scene was illuminated sufficiently to behold the pit. It resembled an inky black eye surrounded by towering trees. 
and just as it had before, the Hidden One spoke from the bowels of the earth. Give, came the voice that wasn't a voice, and with it arose fresh volleys of sickening fragrances. Van Melsen turned to Ellen. Listen, he started, keeping his voice low. We must approach the edge of the pit, now. And, without hesitation, the pair moved through the haze in the direction of the aperture, nearing its brink. The odor was beyond foul. The investigator was certain its source had crept closer to the world of light during their brief absence. Give, came the voice again. In response to the dreadful command, Van Melsen switched the lantern on and held it out above the pit. He said to Ellen, We'll only get one shot at this. Be ready. Ellen knew what was being asked of her, and, quite calmly, though internally her heart was galloping, she opened the sketchbook, withdrew a pencil from her hidden purse, and bit her lip in trepidation. Van Melsen released his grip on the lantern, and both he and Ellen watched in quiet amazement as the object simply hovered there in mid-air, just like the sketchbook had, a glowing emissary on the verge of a journey from which it would never return. Then, slowly at first, but with increasing rapidity, the lamp began to descend, drawn into the earth by the ravenous hidden one. The investigator and the youngster watched as the ball of light descended into the vertical shaft, the former with a preordained expectancy, the latter with a grim foreboding. The pair lost all sense of time, as they observed. They heard it before they saw it. A snorting sound followed by a scuttling sound. The sound of something retreating, something eager to elude the battery-operated intruder that had infiltrated its safety zone. Van Melsen, aware that at least one of them needed to be able to walk away from the encounter with their marbles intact, averted his gaze from the dimly lit aperture, turning his attention to the fear-filled face of Ellen Moore. The girl's eyes blazed as she stared into the abyss, her hand moving back and forth across the sketchbook in front of her. Tears discharged from unblinking eyes, stained her pale cheeks, and still she sketched, spiritedly, absorbing in its entirety the nightmarish thing that had been illuminated below. For the first time in his professional career, the renowned paranormal investigator felt completely helpless. He couldn't support the poor girl, couldn't shoulder her burden, could do nothing but watch as she endured the horror of ages in an effort to free the souls of those consumed by a monster in the blackness. In his powerlessness, a moment of weakness really, he caught sight of Ellen's work, of the things she was in the act of committing to the cursed leaves. Their surroundings were dim, and the glimpse was fleeting, but he saw enough to leave a scar that time would never heal. Sketched by Ellen's nervous hand, Van Melsen witnessed a series of dark lines and shapes, the suggestion of multi-jointed limbs connected to a vast central bulk or torso covered with minuscule pores or sphincters, each oozing dense blobs of graphite, presumably intended to represent some sort of waste product or lifeblood. The approximation of a monstrous face surmounted the central bulk, a terrible mean akin to that of a bloated toad with a horribly distorted orifice or mouth from which poured the penciled depiction of a dark, viscous liquid. The hidden one was coming apart down there, torn asunder by the glow of the lantern, so adapted to the darkness had it become that no longer was it able to tolerate even the most minimal amount of exposure to light. Van Melsen vomited. An appalling mixture of shrieks and fetid gusts emerged from the dark place, immediately followed by an abrupt silence, which, in turn, signaled the end of Ellen's frantic sketching. Recovering himself, Van Melsen lunged at the girl, snatched the sketchbook, and snapped it closed in mid-air before plummeting to the ground, piecemeal fashion. Ellen blinked, and the lantern in the pit died, blotting out forever the incomprehensible remains of the nascent Hidden One. Postface That's quite a tale, uttered Jack Gill, 
who'd been sitting on the edge of his seat for over an hour listening to Norman Kane's yarn. He eyeballed the lock sketchbook curiously, experiencing a mixture of awe and wonder. Indeed, Kane agreed, his plastic hands maintaining a loose grip on the subject of his story. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, this is quite a sketchbook. Gill continued to ogle the book, his mind's eye envisioning the ghastly images sketched upon its hidden pages. Ellen Moore made a full recovery, Kane continued. According to Peter, the hidden one had held her in a sort of psychic thrall. With its passing, the influence it had over her passed too, negating both her memories of it and the terrible things she'd done on its behalf. And Van Melsen? Gil quizzed. Peter's a resilient bugger. <laughs> Kane laughed and coughed a couple of times before proceeding to light another cigarette, much in the manner of his good friend, the renowned paranormal investigator. But he'll carry the burden of what he saw on the pages of this book for the rest of his days. What about the pit? The deep place? According to Peter, it was filled, following an anonymous complaint to natural England. The atmosphere was tense in the underground room at Kane's rare books. Gill felt the power of the object in his presence, not to mention the other items lurking in the shadows and on the shelves surrounding him. The idea that a glimpse of the horror Ellen Moore had sketched upon the pages of the book was within arm's reach was both tantalizing and terrifying. In Gill's mind, morbid curiosity was a human trait as undeniable to him as the need to procreate. But, if Kane's story was anything to go by, the last thing Gill would want to do would be to lay his eyes on the hidden one in its death throes. And then, abruptly, the penny dropped. Gill looked up at Kane, his face like chalk. The thing, the hidden one, he stammered. Its soul, it's in the book. Kane simply nodded and proceeded to return the accursed object to the glass cabinet on the north wall. As he did so, Gill was reminded of the words of Peter Van Melsen. The book is meant for its eyes only. If others were to see the forms printed there, well, chances are most of us would be driven to madness. It is not wholesome for the living to lay eyes upon the souls of the dead.'